Hi, I'm Eric, and this is Listen to Sleep, slow, quiet stories to help you fall asleep. It's a cold, rainy day here at the cabin. Autumn is setting in, and we are having rain for the first time in, I want to say, almost eight months. And it is glorious. Got a fire going in the wood stove, and I'm ready to read you guys a great story. First, a little bit of housekeeping. I want to let you know that the podcast release day is moving from Saturdays to Sundays. It used to come out on Fridays at midnight, and the Patreon version came out Thursdays at midnight. I need some more time to work on the podcast on the weekends instead of during the week, so I'm going to move the podcast release time to Sunday afternoons. It's when the new episodes will come out. And the Patreon subscribers will get the podcast on Saturday afternoon slash evening. Speaking of Patreon subscribers... I'd like to thank Monica for joining the Patreon this week. Thanks so much for your support of the podcast. It's a great little community that's building up over there. It's really fun to chat with you all, and I am really excited to be getting to your requests and just learning a little bit more about what you like and making the podcast better. If you'd like to support the podcast and get it a day early without any ads or introductions, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash listen to sleep and becoming a patron for just $1 a month. That $1 goes towards helping me make the podcast better. And one day, with enough dollars, I'm hoping that it will lead to the realization of my dream of being your bedtime story reader for a living, or at least a retirement. Becky joined the Patreon last month, and when she did, she left a request for Bartleby the Scrivener by Herman Melville. That story came out, released anonymously, in November of 1853. It was published in two parts. In November, the first part came out, and December, the second part. I'm going to read it in four parts over the next two months. So every other week, we'll have another episode of the continuing story of Bartleby the Scrivener. I think you're going to love it. Okay, let's settle in and take a deep breath. And let it out. Tonight, I want you just to relax and lay back. We're going to listen to the sound of the creek that I recorded here at my cabin for a few minutes. And just imagine that it's a few weeks earlier in the fall, and we're having a warm fall summer day. We walk down to the creek by the big boulders at the edge of it, and we get to the water small, trickling pool with cool water. Leaves floating on the surface. A gentle wind. It's a late summer, early fall afternoon. As we cross the creek, it's just a few inches deep. 
We get to the other side, and there's a sandy beach with a big pepperwood tree over it. It's starting to feel a little warm. So we go to the shade of the pepperwood, lay down a blanket, and lie on the sand. As we lie here, breathing in, and breathing out, I just take a moment to think about how grateful we are for the good things in our life. The things that matter. The things that keep us going. What are you grateful for? And just stay there at the creek side, laying on the sandy beach, under the pepperwood tree, with a warm breeze blowing across your body. And if you start to get sleepy while I'm reading to you, that's okay. Just let yourself nod off. Bartleby the Scrivener A Story of Wall Street I am a rather elderly man. The nature of my avocations for the last 30 years has brought me into more than ordinary contact with what would seem an interesting and somewhat singular set of men, of whom as yet nothing that I know of has ever been written. I mean, the law copyists, or scriveners. I have known very many of them, professionally and privately. And if I pleased, I could relate diverse histories, at which good-natured gentlemen might smile, and sentimental souls might weep. But I waive the biographies of all other Scriveners for a few passages in the life of Bartleby, who was a Scrivener of the strangest I ever saw or heard of. While of other law copyists I might write the complete life of Bartleby, nothing of the sort can be done. 
I believe that no materials exist for a full and satisfactory biography of this man. It is an irreparable loss to literature. Bartleby was one of those beings of whom nothing is ascertainable, except from the original sources. And in his case, those are very small. What my own astonished eyes saw of Bartleby, that is all I know of him, except, indeed, one vague report which will appear in the sequel. Ere introducing the Scrivener, as he first appeared to me, it is fit I make some mention of myself, my employees, my business, my chambers, and general surroundings. Because some such description is indispensable to an adequate understanding of the chief character about to be presented. Imprimis. I am a man who, from his youth upwards, has been filled with a profound conviction that the easiest way of life is the best. Hence, though I belong to a profession proverbially energetic and nervous, even to turbulence at times, yet nothing of that sort have I ever suffered to invade my peace. I am one of those unambitious lawyers who never addresses a jury or in any way draws down public applause. But in the cool tranquility of a snug retreat, do a snug business among rich men's bonds and mortgages and title deeds. All who know me consider me an eminently safe man. The late John Jacob Astor, a personage little given to poetic enthusiasm, had no hesitation in pronouncing my first grand point to be prudence, my next method. I do not speak it in vanity, but simply record the fact that I was not unemployed in my profession by the late John Jacob Astor, a name which, I admit, I love to repeat, for it hath a rounded and orbicular sound to it, and rings like unto a bullion. I will freely add that I was not insensible to the late John Jacob Astor's good opinion. Some time prior to the period at which this little history begins, my avocations had been largely increased. The good old office, now extinct in the state of New York, of a master in chancery, had been conferred upon me. It was not a very arduous office, but very pleasantly remunerative. I seldom lose my temper, much more seldom indulge in dangerous indignation at wrongs and outrages. But I must be permitted to be rash here and declare that I consider the sudden and violent abrogation of the office of master in chancery by the new constitution as a premature act, inasmuch as I had counted upon a life lease of the profits, whereas I only received those of a few short years. 
but this is by the way. My chambers were upstairs in a building on Wall Street. At one end, they looked upon the white wall of the interior of a spacious skylight shaft, penetrating the building from top to bottom. This view might have been considered rather tame than otherwise, deficient in what landscape painters call life. But if so, the view from the other end of my chambers offered, at least, a contrast, if nothing more. In that direction, my windows commanded an unobstructed view of a lofty brick wall, black by age and everlasting shade, which wall required no spyglass to bring out its lurking beauties, but for the benefit of all nearsighted spectators, was pushed up to within ten feet of my window panes. Owing to the great height of the surrounding buildings, and my chambers being on the second floor, the interval between this wall and mine not a little resembled a huge square cistern. At the period just preceding the advent of Bartleby, I had two persons as copyists in my employment, and a promising lad as an office boy. First, turkey. Second, nippers. Third, ginger nut. These may seem names the like of which are not usually found in the directory. In truth, they were nicknames, mutually conferred upon each other by my three clerks, and were deemed expressive of their respective persons or characters. Turkey was a short, pursy Englishman of about my own age, that is, somewhere not far from sixty. In the morning, one might say, his face was of a fine, florid hue. But after twelve o'clock, Meridian, his dinner hour, it blazed like a grate full of Christmas coals, and continued blazing, but, as it were, with a gradual wane, till six o'clock p.m., or thereabouts, after which I saw no more of the proprietor of the face, which, gaining its meridian with the sun, seemed to set with it to rise, culminate, and decline the following day, with the like regularity and undiminished glory. There are many singular coincidences I have known in the course of my life, not the least among which was the fact that, exactly when Turkey displayed his fullest beams from his red and radiant countenance, just then, too, at that critical moment began the daily period when I considered his business capacities as seriously disturbed for the remainder of the twenty-four hours. Not that he was absolutely idle or averse to business then, far from it. The difficulty was he was apt to be altogether too energetic. There was a strange, inflamed, flurried, flighty recklessness of activity about him. 
he would be incautious in dipping his pen into his inkstand. All his blots upon my documents were dropped there after 12 o'clock, Meridian. Indeed, not only would he be reckless and sadly given to making blots in the afternoon, but some days he went further and was rather noisy. At such times, too, his face flamed with augmented blazonry, as if cannel coal had been heaped upon anthracite. He made an unpleasant racket with his chair, spilled his sandbox, in mending his pens, impatiently split them all to pieces, and threw them on the floor in a sudden passion, stood up and leaned over his table, boxing his papers about in a most indecorous manner, very sad to behold in an elderly man like him. Nevertheless, as he was in many ways a most valuable person to me, and all the time before twelve o'clock, Meridian was the quickest, steadiest creature, too, accomplishing a great deal of work in a style not easy to be matched. For these reasons, I was willing to overlook his eccentricities, though, indeed, occasionally, I remonstrated with him. I did this very gently, however, because, though the civilest, nay, the blandest and most reverential of men in the morning, yet, in the afternoon, he was disposed, upon provocation, to be slightly rash with his tongue. In fact, insolent. Now, valuing his morning services as I did, and resolved not to lose them, yet at the same time made uncomfortable by his inflamed ways after twelve o'clock, and being a man of peace, unwilling by my admonitions to call forth unseemly retorts from him, I took upon me one Saturday noon, he was always worse on Saturdays, to hint to him very kindly that perhaps now that he was growing old, it might be well to abridge his labors. In short, he need not come to my chambers after twelve o'clock. But dinner over, had best go home to his lodgings and rest himself till tea-time. But no, he insisted upon his afternoon devotions. His countenance became intolerably fervid, and he oratorically assured me, gesticulating with a long ruler at the other end of the room, that if his services in the morning were useful, how indispensable, then, in the afternoon? With submission, sir, said Turkey on this occasion, I consider myself your right-hand man. In the morning, I but marshal and deploy my columns, but in the afternoon, I put myself at their head and gallantly charge the foe, thus, and he made a violent thrust with the ruler. But the blots, Turkey, intimated I. True, but 
with submission, sir, behold these hairs. I am getting old. Surely, sir, a blot or two of a warm afternoon is not to be severely urged against gray hairs. Old age, even if it blot the page, is honorable. With submission, sir, we both are getting old. This appeal to my fellow feeling was hardly to be resisted. At all events, I saw that go he would not, so I made up my mind to let him stay, resolving, nevertheless, to see to it that during the afternoon he had to do with my less important papers. Nippers, the second on my list, was a whiskered, sallow, and, upon the whole, rather piratical-looking young man of about five and twenty. I always deemed him the victim of two evil powers, ambition and indigestion. Ambition was evinced by a certain impatience of the duties of a mere copyist, an unwarrantable usurpation of strictly professional affairs, such as the original drawing up of legal documents. The indigestion seemed betokened in an occasional nervous testiness and grinning irritability, causing the teeth to audibly grind together over mistakes committed in copying, unnecessary maledictions, hissed rather than spoken in the heat of business, and especially by a continual discontent with the height of the table where he worked. Though of a very ingenious mechanical turn, Nippers could never get this table to suit him. He put chips under it, blocks of various sorts, bits of pasteboard, and at last went so far as to attempt an exquisite adjustment by final pieces of folded blotting paper. But no invention would answer. If, for the sake of easing his back, he brought the table lid at a sharp angle well up towards his chin and wrote there like a man using the steep roof of a Dutch house for his desk, then he declared that it stopped the circulation in his arms. If now he lowered the table to his waistbands and stooped over it in writing, then there was a sore aching in his back. In short, the truth of the matter was, Nippers knew not what he wanted. Or, if he wanted anything, it was to be rid of a Scrivener's table altogether. Among the manifestations of his diseased ambition was a fondness he had for receiving visits from certain ambiguous-looking fellows in seedy coats, whom he called his clients. Indeed, I was aware that not only was he, at times, considerable of a ward politician, but he occasionally did a little business at the justices' courts and was not unknown on the steps of the tombs. I have good reason to believe, however, that one individual who called upon him at my chambers 
and who, with a grand air, he insisted was his client, was no other than a dun, and the alleged title deed, a bill. But with all his failings, and the annoyances he caused me, Nippers, like his compatriot Turkey, was a very useful man to me, wrote a neat, swift hand, and, when he chose, was not deficient in a gentlemanly sort of deportment. Added to this, he always dressed in a gentlemanly sort of way, and so, incidentally, reflected credit upon my chambers. Whereas, with respect to Turkey, I had much ado to keep him from being a reproach to me. His clothes were apt to look oily and smell of eating houses. He wore his pantaloons very loose and baggy in the summer. His coats were execrable. His hat was not to be handled. But while the hat was a thing of indifference to me, inasmuch as his natural civility and deference as a dependent Englishman always led him to doff it the moment he entered the room, yet his coat was another matter. Concerning his coats, I reasoned with him, but with no effect. The truth was, I suppose, that a man of so small an income could not afford to sport such a lustrous face and a lustrous coat at one and the same time. As Nippers once observed, Turkey's money went chiefly for red ink. One winter day, I presented Turkey with a highly respectable-looking coat of my own, a padded gray coat of a most comfortable warmth, and which buttoned straight up from the knee to the neck. I thought Turkey would appreciate the favor and abate his rashness and obstreperousness of afternoons. But no, I verily believe that buttoning himself up in so downy and blanket-like a coat had a pernicious effect upon him, upon the same principle that too much oats are bad for horses. In fact, precisely as a rash, restive horse is said to feel his oats, so Turkey felt his coat. It made him insolent. He was a man whom prosperity harmed. Though concerning the self-indulgent habits of Turkey, I had my own private surmises. Yet, touching nippers, I was well persuaded that whatever might be his faults in other respects, he was, at least, a temperate young man. But indeed, nature herself seemed to have been his vintner, and his birth charged him so thoroughly with an irritable, brandy-like disposition that all subsequent potations were needless. When I consider how, amid the stillness of my chambers, Nippers would sometimes impatiently rise from his seat and, stooping over his table, spread his arms wide apart, seize the whole desk, and move it and jerk it with a grim, grinding motion on the floor, as if 
the table were a perverse voluntary agent, intent on thwarting and vexing him. I plainly perceived that for nippers, brandy, and water were altogether superfluous. It was fortunate for me that, owing to its particular cause, indigestion, the irritability and consequent nervousness of nippers were mainly observable in the morning, while in the afternoon he was comparatively mild. So that turkey's paroxysms only coming on about twelve o'clock, I never had to do with their eccentricities at one time. Their fits relieved each other, like guards. When nippers was on, turkey's was off, and vice versa. This was a good natural arrangement under the circumstances. Ginger Nut, the third on my list, was a lad some twelve years old. His father was a carman, ambitious of seeing his son on the bench instead of a cart before he died. So he sent him to my office as a student at law, errand boy, and cleaner and sweeper, at the rate of one dollar a week. He had a little desk to himself, but he did not use it much. Upon inspection, the drawer exhibited a great array of the shells of various sorts of nuts. Indeed, to this quick-witted youth, the whole noble science of the law was contained in a nutshell. Not the least among the employments of Ginger Nut, as well as one which he discharged with the most alacrity, was his duty as cake and apple purveyor for turkey and nippers. Copying law papers being proverbially dry, husky sort of business, my two scriveners were fain to moisten their mouths very often with Spitzenbergs to be had at the numerous stalls nigh the custom house and post office. Also, they sent ginger nut very frequently for that particular cake, small, flat, round, and very spicy, after which he had been named by them. Of a cold morning when business was but dull, Turkey would gobble up scores of these cakes, as if they were mere wafers. Indeed, they sell them at the rate of six or eight for a penny, the scrape of his pen blending with the crunching of the crisp particles in his mouth. Of all the fiery afternoon blunders and flurried rashnesses of turkey, was his once moistening a ginger cake between his lips and clapping it onto a mortgage for a seal. But I came within an ace of dismissing him then. He mollified me by making an oriental bow and saying, With submission, sir, it was generous of me to find you in stationery on my own account. Now, my original business that of a conveyancer and title-hunter, and drawer-up of recondite documents of all sorts, was considerably increased by receiving the master's office. There was now great work for scriveners. Not only must I push the clerks already with me, 
but I must have additional help. In answer to my advertisement, a motionless young man one morning stood upon my office threshold, the door being open, for it was summer. I can see that figure now, pallidly neat, pitiably respectable, incurably forlorn. It was Bartleby. After a few words touching his qualifications, I engaged him, glad to have among my corps of copyists a man of so singularly sedate an aspect, which, I thought, might operate beneficially upon the flighty temper of turkey and the fiery one of nippers. I should have stated before that ground-glass folding doors divided my premises into two parts, one of which was occupied by my scriveners, the other by myself. According to my humor, I threw open these doors or closed them. I resolved to assign Bartleby a corner by the folding doors, but on my side of them, so as to have this quiet man within easy call, in case any trifling thing was to be done. I placed his desk close up to a small side window in that part of the room, a window which originally had afforded a lateral view of certain grimy backyards and bricks, but which, owing to subsequent directions, commanded at present no view at all, though it gave some light. Within three feet of the panes was a wall, and the light came down from far above, between two lofty buildings, as from a very small opening in a dome. Still further to a satisfactory arrangement, I procured a high green folding screen, which might entirely isolate Bartleby from my sight, though not remove him from my voice. And thus, in a manner, privacy and society were conjoined. At first, Bartleby did an extraordinary quantity of writing. As if long famishing for something to copy, he seemed to gorge himself on my documents. There was no pause for digestion. He ran a day and night line, copying by sunlight and by candlelight. I should have been quite delighted with his application, had he been cheerfully industrious. But he wrote on silently, palely, mechanically. It is, of course, an indispensable part of a Scrivener's business to verify the accuracy of his copy, word by word. Where there are two or more Scriveners in an office, they assist each other in this examination, one reading from the copy, the other holding the original. It is a very dull, wearisome, and lethargic affair. I can readily imagine that to some sanguine temperaments it would be altogether intolerable. For example, I cannot credit that the meddlesome poet Byron would have contentedly sat down with Bartleby to examine a law document of, say, five hundred pages, closely written in a crimpy hand. Now and then, 
in the haste of business, it had been my habit to assist in comparing some brief document myself, calling turkey or nippers for this purpose. One object I had in placing Bartleby so handy to me behind the screen was to avail myself of his services on such trivial occasions. It was on the third day, I think, of his being with me, and before any necessity had arisen for having his own writing examined, that being much hurried to complete a small affair I had in hand, I abruptly called to Bartleby, in my haste and natural expectancy of instant compliance, I sat with my head bent over the original on my desk and my right hand sideways, and somewhat nervously extended with the copy, so that immediately upon emerging from his retreat, Bartleby might snatch it and proceed to business without the least delay. In this very attitude did I sit when I called to him, rapidly stating what it was I wanted him to do, namely, to examine a small paper with me. Imagine my surprise, nay, my consternation, when, without moving from his privacy, Bartleby, in a singularly mild, firm voice, replied, I would prefer not to. I sat a while in perfect silence, rallying my stunned faculties. Immediately it occurred to me that my ears had deceived me, or Bartleby had entirely misunderstood my meaning. I repeated my request in the clearest tone I could assume, but in quite as clear a one came the previous reply. I would prefer not to. Prefer not to, echoed I, rising in high excitement and crossing the room with a stride. What do you mean? Are you moonstruck? I want you to help me compare this sheet here. Take it. And I thrust it towards him. I would prefer not to, said he. I looked at him steadfastly. His face was leanly composed, his gray eye dimly calm. Not a wrinkle of agitation rippled him. Had there been the least uneasiness, anger, impatience, or impertinence in his manner? In other words, had there been anything ordinarily human about him, Doubtless I should have violently dismissed him from the premises. But as it was, I should have as soon thought of turning my pale plaster-of-Paris bust of Cicero out of doors. I stood gazing at him a while, as he went on with his own writing, and then reseated myself at my desk. This is very strange, thought I. What had one best do? but my business hurried me. I concluded to forget the matter for the present, reserving it for my future leisure. So, calling nippers from the other room, the paper was speedily examined.
Good night.